Hello and good evening. You're welcome to Reader's Hour on Quarantine FM. You are joined by your hosts, myself, Catherine Gallagher and Anna Dalton. In Reader's Hour, we'll be discussing Irish writing in all forms, including fiction, drama, essays, poetry, journalism and everything in between. On today's show, we are going to hear from award-winning author Nicole Flattery. Later on, we'll be taking a look at the Irish translator, Frank Wynne, who has recently edited a collection of queer writing. But first of all, we are going to discuss the infamous uh, droppings or mentions of Irish poetry in particularly uh, presidential speeches of late and, and of past and from Heaney to Joyce to Yeats and and uh, well those are the three main players and, and we'll delve in, into them. And the most uh, recent one uh, that we know in our psych uh, from the US election was Joyce in Biden's recent speech. Um, do you mind refreshing her memory on that a little bit? Yes, so this was um, shortly before, a couple of days before the inauguration, um, Biden was, you know, at a rally or at a, giving a speech and he quoted James Joyce um, and it, the clip kind of went viral because he, he got kind of quite emotional when he was reciting a line of Joyce, which was, when I die, Dublin will be written on my heart. And speaking of his home state, Delaware, he said, for me, you know, when I die, Delaware will be written on my heart. And he also quipped, um, you know, people, you know, slag me for always going back to the Irish poets. You know, it's not because of my Irish heritage. It's because they're the best poets in the world. So this is he's he's well known for for dipping into, you know, Heaney and the and Yeats and the like for you know, when he's giving a speech, he's proud of, I suppose, of his Irish heritage, but he's also, as he says himself, a big fan of Irish literature and rates it very highly. So he'll, he's, he uses it a lot in his own political rhetoric. Another example of, I suppose, his use of Irish poetry that went viral was his campaign video where it mentions Heaney's the cure at Troy, um, where it says, history says, don't hope on this side of the grave, but then once in a lifetime, the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. That, and we'll, we'll take a look at that poem in full in a moment as well. Um, this poem in particular, it is based off a play it is yeah it's sort of Heaney has done that or pardon me did that a f- quite a few times of translating from the classics so this was a Greek um play by the dramatist Sophocles and he basically translated the play but it's in verse so he he translates it into a long poem um and yeah it addresses it's from around the fifth century BC it addresses questions of personal morality deceit and kind of it's political criticism as well and suffering and he- and healing so um i think he sort of brings it he draws out the relevance i think from that time period you know to the present um 
and it kind of shows the timelessness of the work. So I think even in that quote that you you mentioned there, you know, that it, 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 it is perfectly timeless. So I think it's it has become quite a soundbite, particularly that that line, you know, the long for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. And I, you know, I think it's 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 very lyrical and people people like the sound of it. I think in in a political context, um, you know. And I think maybe Anna, that might be a nice segue maybe for people who maybe don't know um the poem unfold or the 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 longer version than the soundbite. Would you mind taking a read of that for our listeners, if you don't mind? I will. Yeah, I will. I'll read just the passage, um, with a few stanzas that are kind of the. I suppose kind of a momentous bit of it so yeah this is from the Cura Troy human beings suffer they torture one another they get hurt and get hard no poem or play or song can fully write a wrong inflicted and endured history says don't hope on this side of the grave but then once in a lifetime the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme so hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call miracles self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain or lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. So, and it was that bit actually that was used. If you look up the campaign video and you can get it, it kind of when you Google it, it throws up the video on Biden's Twitter account and it's him reading that out. And then there's images kind of of Americans in black and white. And he notably there's images of from Black Lives Matter protests. So he, he kind of deliberately makes a link of, of that moment. So, yeah, I mean, it does, it, it opens up that broader question of, of using art for political gain um, and, you know, using a poem like that, I suppose, to, to try and rally your own cause. Um, and, and it's interesting, I suppose, in Heaney's case, because he was somebody who was criticised during his career for not being political enough. Um, you know, even though he arguably he was sometimes it was, a, I think, a little bit more oblique rather than direct. And I think some people f felt that he, he didn't go far enough. But now you have, you know, politicians putting his words into use in sort of with the political agenda so you you would wonder i think you'd wonder how he knew would interpret that would he mind his work being politicized or would he feel like you know people have a right to use use the words and kind of interpret them as they see fit you're you're dead right um in saying that he was criticized for i suppose sidestepping the fence the, the political fence but at times um, it can be argued that his Catholic roots sometimes did and Catholic upbringing um, did kind of influence 
Well, I mean, the, the troubles in the north at the time, I mean, I, I don't think either of us will ever really appreciate uh, the difficulties up there at the time because we weren't there. But um, he did certainly try uh, to a certain extent not to be, like you said, you know, out, outright political. And there's a poem... Um, that sums us up, I think, from the early 1990s, the poem The Flight Path, where he describes a train journey from Dublin to Belfast in the late 1970s, during which a senior Northern Republican, and we later know this now to be Danny Morrison of Sinn Féin, uh, where he bumps into him on the train, and there's there's one... Uh, explicit word in it so uh, forgive me for that but um, in the flight path he writes so he enters and sits down opposite and goes for me head on when for fuck's sake are you going to write something for us and he replied if I do write something whatever it is I'll be writing for myself and that was that so Heaney was very aware that he was he was criticized like you said for not being a bit more um outright in maybe his political beliefs or um what side of the fence he was uh, treading on but he did guard his personal and artistic integrity against the demands for the most part, of what people might have expected or wanted from him. Um, and I think that's important to remember because like like you just said, um, it would be very interesting to see what he would say now. And considering he is quoted so often, I think it's important to, you know, that that he, he says that he wrote for himself and that that was it. Yeah, of hope and history rhyme, that verse has been used quite a lot. Former US President Bill Clinton used it in the run-up to the Good Friday Agreement. Um, Mary Robinson used it on becoming President of Ireland, and it's it's been used so many times since then. Um, another, and maybe this is where we might park, um, to a certain extent about Heaney, we might take a look at Yeats in a moment, or Joyce, but... Um, Leo Varadkar opted for a less familiar um, Heaney piece three years ago um, from an, a 1987's From the Republic of Conscience. And it was at their inauguration, public leaders must swear to uphold upwritten law and weep to atone for the presumption to hold office. And then again... What almost nearly, I think, nearly became a meme to a certain extent during COVID. Um, maybe we might uh, flesh this out maybe a bit more, but um, over COVID, that famous line uh, that he used in one of his speeches about restrictions, if we winter this one out, we can summer anywhere. And this contrary to what people might believe wasn't from a poem but it was from an interview that Heaney gave in 1972 about the Troubles what did what did you think of that line Anna and um 
I, 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 yeah, I suppose that and being used in, in times of crisis, it seems to be. That's the the common thread I'm seeing, like the Black Lives Matter in Biden's campaign, COVID now and Leo Varadkar. Um, that, that's what I'm off the top of my head. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, um, it's interesting just on that, if we winter this one out. I didn't, I thought that was from a poem. It sounds very poetic, doesn't it? So mm. it can, maybe it's just a testament to his skill that he was able to just trip that off in an interview. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, you can see why people that was picked up on and used by Vradkar. It's, you know, it's sort of something to, for people to cling on to, isn't it? You know, a bit of optimism of, it's bad now, but it's going to get better. And I think that really helps people. You know, I think another one, just as an aside, that went around a lot was Derek Mahan's Everything is Going to Be All Right. And we heard that mm-hmm. a lot. And I think it does kind of help to boost morale. But then one thing is that it can sort of, into your question of whether, I don't know how, how, we, how are we to take politicians using poetry, you know, in to kind of in, help implement their own agendas and I think in that case you know we have to be careful I suppose that it doesn't distract maybe from what the government is actually doing because I think at the moment a lot of people are very frustrated that you know we're here in lockdown three and and what's happening you know is is there what what, when are we looking at the exit point so I think this line at you know looking at that now people might be reading it a bit differently and thinking "Mm -hmm, well how did that pan out and in Biden's case, I think, you know, if his policy doesn't back up the fact that he's, you know, from the look of that campaign video, he's getting behind, he's visually and in terms of the poetry he's quoting, trying to get behind the Black Lives Matter movement. But will his policy support it? There's that famous phrase of, you know, people campaign in poetry and then govern in prose. So sometimes you know it's all talk so I suppose you have to keep an eye out absolutely and you know Biden was mentioning his Irish roots quite a lot throughout throughout his campaign and the next question here is if Michal Martin is going to go out to the White House with the Bowl of Shamrock um that's the next thing, um, but there's been no invitation yet as far as we are aware, so it mightn't even happen. And we're not going to get into the debate of whether he should go or not. You know, this isn't the political show. Maybe a view from the ditch, maybe I might cover that, maybe. But um, the other thing is that, the, the one thing I saw is that there's been no famous phone call. There's been no phone call exchange since the inauguration. So it's it's um there I think there was a, a a phone call when he won, but not since the inauguration. And apparently he's been ringing a lot of other world leaders. So it does, you know, you do wonder like how strong are these, you know, uh, love of Irish streets. But um, it reminds me. Speaking of Patrick's Day, and and maybe to use an example of another poet, and how he has kind of been used in a different way that in 2016 the former Taoiseach and Kenny um visited the White House for the St Patrick's Day celebrations and he gifted President Obama and Biden at the time who was vice president with a hand printed volumes of WB Yeats's poetry 
and Kenny also gave books of Yeats's quotations to Obama's daughters. There was also in, in the, the Watford Crystal Bowl, there was engraved with lines from the poems, he wishes for the cloths of heaven. But there, there was two, I think, reasons at the time that the poetry was very much, or Yeats was emphasised on that visit, was it was the 1916 celebrations here, kind of 100 years on. And also there was the year beforehand in 2015, there was the, now maybe Anna, you might know, um, I read somewhere in 2015, it was, and I, I remember this from school and I should know, but um, the 150th anniversary of Yeats. When people say that, is that 150 years since he was born or his death? I, it was his, it was his, I'm trying to think because there's a word for this, which is if Thomas Rogers Anderson is listening, well, that was the sesquicentennial. <laughs> because when we were, yeah, when we were in Trinity, which I've mentioned before, when Susanna Galbraith was on the show, we were both involved in the Trinity Journal of Literary Translation. And the year we were on the committee was that year. So we actually had a, a an issue called Regenerating Yeats, where we asked people to translate versions of Yeats's poetry and respond creatively to it so I just that's why I remember the word so um yeah I feel it must be since his birth is that right 1865 so if we add on 150 to that it should be yeah it should work out yeah okay this is his birthday okay but do you think this is something we'll see more of down the line, more kind of sprinkling of Irish poetry in, in speeches? Yeah, I think in, in terms of um, Biden, I think so. He, yeah, he's he's well known for it and I don't know why he would stop now. And then there's, I mean, at some point, hopefully during, I mean, I imagine during the presidency, once travel opens up again, if he pays visit to Ireland, I imagine that will be, you know, a fair ground for Irish poetry and actually you mentioned that is interesting that he hasn't um made the phone call the traditional phone call because I, I did see I don't know if you saw this Michael D wrote him a letter congratulating him on the inauguration and in it he quoted a, a poet I think it was John O'Donoghue and obviously Michael D is a poet himself um and kind of saying you know looking forward to having you back in Ireland so yeah, I I'd say we're in, we won't we haven't heard the end of it yet of of Biden's uh quotation from Irish poetry. So Anna, you were chatting to Nicole. Tell us what the two of you got talking about. Yeah, so I was speaking to author Nicole Flattery recently and she was kind enough to to speak to me. She has a book of um short stories out. So we were able to speak a bit about that. Um, sh- that was published. It's called Show Them a Good Time. It's published in 2019 by Stinging Fly Press and then subsequently by Bloomsbury in the UK and the US. So, yeah, and Nicole, she's from Westmeath and she's also she's working on a new book. But yeah, we just got speaking about her writing in general and about the collection and what she's up to now. 
So I'm really, really pleased now to welcome Nicole Flattery onto the show. So first of all, thanks a million, Nicole, for coming on and you're very welcome. So I just wanted to first ask how you got involved in writing, how you became interested in it. Um, yeah, just how it came, came to you. I think I was always, I was always very interested in school. Um, like I was like good at English, which is like a thing, like when you're good at something in school, I was like, oh, she's good at that. And then you start actually being good at something. Um, and then I read a lot. My dad's an English teacher. So I was always like, oh, yeah. surrounded by books and stuff. Um, but then, yeah, I went to college and I studied theatre and film in college. I read a lot of plays and things and like started writing dialogue and, and stuff like that and, and did a playwriting course. And then um, I put on a play. And then I stopped kind of writing for a little while. Um, I was in my early 20s. Did a master's in, in, the, in creative writing, uh, which was great and like very useful to me. But I was quite young doing it, so I didn't really have a whole lot of confidence mm -hmm. um, or a whole lot of skill. <laughs> so it was, I didn't publish anything from that and I never will. Um, but it was, it was a great like time, a great year of my life. Like I just spent it reading and, and talking about books and things. Then I worked. Um, a lot of difficult, badly paid jobs, which is always useful for your writing. <laughs> and, <Definitely>. uh, <laughs> and then I published my first story in the Stinging Fly when I was like 25. And then things just kind of went from there. I lived in New York for a little while um, and I was writing over there. And yeah, I just kind of wrote a few stories and then Declan Mead of the Stinging Fly um, asked if I wanted to do a collection. And I said, I very much would like to do that. And he asked me quite hilariously via Twitter DM. I was like, I never thought I could get a publishing contract like this. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so I just kind of kept writing the stories and until I had like seven or eight and one of them turned out to be quite long. So um, I was, yeah, I was there then and yeah. published it and I was happy. For, for a time <laughs> <laughs> a brief another one. <laughs> yeah wow um so that's interesting you said that you um you kind of wrote some play or you wrote a play when you were studying and put that on yeah. um and then so how did you move from writing theater writing mm -hmm. drama to fiction or non-fiction yeah. Like I always read a lot of fiction and I was always interested in like new fiction from there I kind of when I put on the play as much as like a brilliant experience as that was like and I always think it's a great thing for like young people who want to get involved in writing to start a playwriting or like a fringe show or something rather than like sitting at home at your desk on your own because it requires so much of you whereas this it's like energetic and you meet people and things mm. um so I did that, but I'm not a natural, I don't think I was a natural playwright, um, which is hard for me to admit, but I, I just had trouble like making something happen on stage. And I was interested in then like in prose um, itself and just being in control, really. I was like, I want to do everything. I want to write it and cast it in my mind and do the costumes, <laughs> do everything. Yeah. I'm a megalomaniac, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so that was kind of it. I, I just I started reading a lot of short stories around that time. I never felt confident enough to try a novel in my twenties, but I um I thought I thought I could write short stories. Like I was interested in the form and yeah. started reading Kevin Barry and Colin Barrett and all the Irish ones. And I, and I think it definitely you know, it stands to the to your to the short stories that you write that 
I think you have that background in theatre because there's the dialogue is so important to the form and I like I I just think that's something you do so well like it's so kind of funny but it has to be very I think as well it's like that precision of language um I kind of got that impression when I was reading your work like you're definitely someone who doesn't waste words which mm-hmm. I don't know if that's something that maybe is crucial to drama as well that maybe yeah. influenced you I think so like I, I think that it's a great education reading plays like I enjoy just reading them anyway and I always always will and enjoy when you can um going to the theater which has been extremely hard the last year and I really did it for all theater makers and theater goers but um, yeah I recommend just like for for any kind of um writing to read plays um because also they just have this like kind of imaginative space that sometimes like novels or short stories don't go to um so yeah I just I just I just found it great Um, I, I love writing dialogue anyway it's actually the one part of uh, writing I really like. Yeah but I want actually to circle back to the um, when you won because you won the White Review Prize didn't you and that obviously must have been a big kind of moment to jettison your writing yeah. early on. Yeah it was and it was it was great because I was um, firstly very broke and secondly yeah. I don't know like I, I'm kind of like you know I'm on the fence about prize culture and you know Mm -hmm. I feel that like prizes kind of firstly are are exhausting (laughs) and like secondly they're also I don't know um many many books are worthy of praise and they don't all get prizes and you know um but on my own personal level that was a great prize (laughs) and it really was um yeah it was just kind of it gave me a lot of confidence that I didn't have up to that point and gave me a lot of opportunities which I also didn't have up to, up to that point and just made me feel like I was on the right track or it gave me like a level of security that I just didn't yeah I just didn't have you know definitely yeah um, it's a it's a really important recognition of the value yeah. of of writing and of art isn't it yeah. to have someone say here's like significant amount of money support yourself yeah. like go and write yeah, yeah yeah and it is and you do need that you need that support and like you do, like it's a lonely kind of profession at the beginning and you need any kind of praise <laughs> you can get, you know, or, or any kind of support you can get. So it was brilliant. It was such a good evening. <laughs> I had a great evening. Like I think, I'm thinking back fondly on any good evening I have, yes, I had in my true. life in quarantine. I'm like, God, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Maybe back yeah. there. Thinking back wistfully. <laughs> yeah. So with the stinging fly um did you it was that kind of a publication that you were aware of and you were drawn mm-hmm. to that or i'm just wondering because then you have you've obviously developed like a great relationship with that journal and that led to yeah your collection um i think that i definitely knew about it from like um just reading short stories so like i knew that like they had first published Colin Barrett and like Kevin Barry and Danielle McLaughlin and all these brilliant kind of writers. And I think if you're interested in writing short stories, like The Singing Flies, it's like, yeah, like the, the bar <laughs> in Ireland, certainly. Um, so that was something that was like on my mind and I'd read it a lot and I just really admired all the writers that published there and where they came from. And then by pure chance, uh, I got to know the editor. Uh, he lived upstairs from where I worked at the time and, uh, he asked to see some of my writing and I did like one of the stories and I, I kind of reworked it and um, 
yeah, it was a brilliant process. You know, I really felt that like from the beginning there, he was a great editor and, and Declan Mead's a great editor. So I never felt I was in unsafe hands, whatever. Yeah. Any kind of note or anything I got from them was always fully right, you know? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's such a, again, like a really important thing, isn't it? To have somebody willing to kind of comb through and say, yeah, uh, to point you in the right direction and give you the the time and, you know, the space to do that. Because I think a lot of people know that experience of just, you know, when you're trying to submit writing and you submit it mm -hmm. out into the void and no one ever gets back to you. So when somebody yeah. is like doing a back and forth with you, that's, I just think so valuable. Yeah, no, it is. It's great. And, um, you know, the time and commitment they're giving to it. And I also think it's such an incredibly like underrated skill, like being a good editor, which is just as like valuable as like being a good writer and takes the same amount of work, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. If you got a good one you know like a good relationship hold on to them desperately never let them leave <laughs> I want to maybe talk a little bit about some of the the stories in the collection but um and I I'm just going to embarrass you again by saying that I because I read that you it won another the collection won a prize in December mm. for the, yeah. the London magazine so congratulations yeah. that's great that's great because I have I have like obviously like the book's been out since 2019 so yeah. I was like, that's me done now. I'm wrapped up. No more prizes for me. And then I was at home and I just come home and I won. And it was so good. And then I had like, obviously couldn't do anything. So me and my parents were both just like, I'll just like, will we have a drink? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but really, God, I was like, that's a nice way to end, you know, 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Too, so. Yeah, I, because it was so it was stinging fly press, but then it was picked up by Bloomsbury. Is that yes, it? Bloomsbury yeah. In the UK. yeah, and the US. Yeah, yes. um, nice. Which was a good, um, also a great kind of you know um, moment. Um, yeah, that, I mean that. Happened. Yeah, that itself is is huge. <laughs> and yeah, so in the stories themselves, like I, um, I think that's so interesting. Your what you said there a few minutes ago about sort of the imaginative space. And kind of being playful maybe within that in the stories that you write because that definitely came across me like there's such great black humor in them and I as well like I thought there was a lot of you know the characters who either can't or don't know how to or won't mm. adhere to social codes or they're kind of yeah. struggling to mm. to fit into them and I think you know, the, I think there's in the story Hump, there's this really funny bit at the beginning of kind of the funeral and then this concept of sort of like the chief mourners. But it, I find like, yeah, that you, you had characters sort of vocalise that and talk about these sort of unspoken mm. parts of, of kind of the societal codes that, mm. I, that I, I really liked how you did that. Thank you. Um, it's not an intentional thing. So I, also, I always laugh at that story because I read somewhere... Like I, it was my first ever published story and I read somewhere then afterwards, like never start a story at a funeral. Um, oh, wow. And I'm actually, I'm working on a novel now and that starts at a funeral. <laughs> all my books will start at funerals. <laughs> it's your calling card. <laughs> <laughs> She's killed them all off. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I, I don't like, I guess like, but it's like a thing that has had, like come up many times. Like, you know, these are obviously women who are like feeling like a drift and you know kind of at, at odds like you said with like kind of like societal expectations and things and I didn't have like that specific theme in my mind when I was writing the stories 
and I didn't have any kind of set kind of cohesive um, ideas. Although I like collection, I've always liked story collections that kind of do that. But when I finished the book and I wrote the last story and I read back over it, I was like, ah, no, this is exactly where that's coming from. So it's obviously coming from like, you know, <laughs> some um, aspect of my own life, which was probably, you know, being a woman in my 20s, which I feel like, you know, is full, filled with these, all these kind of pressures, which are like societal, but also like totally inane, you know, like that you have to like look this way and like mm-hmm. do this thing. And like, I don't know, just I guess like if there's a freedom and kind of writing about that and, you know, breaking it down your writing and you can make, you know, I think writing about these things makes them strange. Like, you know, the, the idea mm-hmm. that you have to do all these things, you know, others it. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's so true that it it's when you kind of, when you write about them and you, you can, like you said, sort of othering, because I find fans sometimes in the stories, there's almost like a dystopian feel mm-hmm. to some of them to me. And I think there's a, sometimes like a, um, a deliberate sort of sparseness of detail of maybe not pinning down the specifics of what a town looks like, but just, yeah. you know, so it, it almost feels like quite like unsettled, which mm-hmm. sometimes, yeah, I found like created like a sinister edge to it. Or also in say the story, is it track? And there's this kind of male ego, um, <laughs> you know, character, like a, quite a toxic relationship at the center of it, but you have this, a comedian who's obsessed with his career listening to a laugh track all the time and I I, yeah that was such a good I don't know it was quite like a freaky but really yeah. powerful <laughs> commentary I thought I just love laugh tracks <laughs> great um yeah I think that like um I guess it all comes from like what you like reading or like what you like watching like I certainly would think about like films a lot when I'm I'm writing and things and I like that like for me like writing about like a small town in Ireland you know there are all like quite similar like I feel like if you grew up in like any small to medium town size now you had a lot a lot of similar experiences and I like that like not naming places um I don't know I don't like that fixed kind of kind of thing um but yeah I I I get what you what you mean there (laughs) yeah um yeah and yeah that's interesting actually there's the influence of film yeah we talked about because I don't know if this is I was thinking of Yorgos Lanthimos um Mm. (laughs) the lobster I don't know why but I think and maybe it's partly because that film was actually filmed in Ireland wasn't it yeah Yeah, I was thinking of that at some points mm-hmm. for like the sort of the town and the certain like as well like um I think what we were talking about before with this weird societal mm-hmm. codes which mm-hmm. is an, an aspect of that film but anyway um yeah yeah I, yeah so, <laughs> yeah, so am I a huge fan I, love I, I do too and yeah. somebody who uses black humor in yeah. such a such a powerful way um yeah. I wanted to mention, yeah, because you'd mentioned one of the stories is longer. So that's abortion, a love story. And yeah. yeah, I mean, which is such a hugely interesting title to me because it's very, it's like immediately kind of quite irreverent, but it's such a, a, a subversive story. I think in a lot of ways about kind of women, young women who, you know, have been exploited by men in different ways who kind of come together to sort of reclaim their mm-hmm. story. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, for that one, obviously as well, it was kind of the influence of theatre in that one. And you, you almost like stage a play in that story as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, this is the, like, the really fun thing I wanted to do. Um, so when I was thinking, like, I, was, I just thought of this earlier, but when I was working on these, I was thinking, like, every single story, I was, like, thinking of, like, a different kind of genre. So I was thinking about, um, uh, like, for Show Them a Good Time, I was thinking about, like, the workplace kind of, like, comedy. And then, you know, for, like, track, I was like, this is my romantic comedy. Like, I was thinking, like, how can you play with genre, which I always, I've always been really inf- in, like interested in, but this was, this was kind of like, abortion love story was like my friendship kind of one, but I knew that like always that I, I wanted to do a story that was like a play um, or have some aspects of a play in it just because I, I enjoy reading plays and I, I wanted to, and I got, I, I, I got to a point where I was like, writing and writing and writing and I, I was like where can I go where can I go when I was working with someone I was working with <laughs> Colin Barrett on these and he was reading over like reading over my stories for me and giving me feedback or whatever and he was like you have to write the play and I was like oh no <laughs> so it's been really funny to see the reaction to this story because it's kind of like in reviews and stuff I mean I, I read all my reviews and I know I shouldn't <laughs> but I am um, like some people have really loved it and then like some people have been like totally confused by it and like Oh, I loved it. I and also, yeah. I I think I just wasn't expecting you to stage the play, so yeah. I was just like, "Oh my god, here's the play!" And it's so full. It's so I don't know. It's just it's such a realized vision. Um, the play can never actually be staged. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I was thinking that it has to be really bad. <laughs> you know, these two girls are <laughs> they're they're difficult. <laughs> So I don't think the play where they come up would be the would be the best thing ever. But it was lots of like I really enjoyed doing that. I really enjoyed bringing all the elements kind of kind of together. And I don't know, it would just for my own like pleasure. Like I've always really enjoyed like even like at a very like basic level, like from like twelve upwards, like watching women like or reading about women like female characters like doing stuff like like Nancy Drew, whatever. Like that not just about like. I don't know romance or like whatever like I really wanted like them to make something because just I find doing that myself so enjoyable um I mean I could probably keep talking about the collection but I I will probably have to move on so I yeah I you mentioned that you're working on something what what is that (laughs) I'm writing a novel um cool and it's going fine (laughs) it's been good because I really had like with the last not that I can say that anything that the last year has been good but uh given me a lot of space and time to kind of focus on this mm-hmm. in a way I didn't when I was like writing when I was kind of promoting the first book so I'm hoping I'll finish this this year and hopefully next year yeah so I've never written a novel before I'm just like way in way over my head yeah like, I spent loads of this time of this book going around like being like writing a short story is harder than a novel it is not <laughs> I'm a liar it's not harder it's so yeah. much easier but yeah it's it's a it's a process of self-discovery yeah, yeah which well, is I'd say yeah it's a, I suppose yeah it must be it's quite a different muscle and a different vision to try and work out but oh yeah no, just hold, holding a lot in the air like yeah. you just hold like 
and you can't give yourself that kind of sudden way out like you do in a short story. I think yeah, a lot of writers and artists have said, you know, it's, it has been useful in some ways to have the force of time to just, okay, well, I have to take a look at this now and you have proper time to do it. But it's also, I'd imagine, it is, it's difficult as well. I find like concentration with the anxious times we live in is also difficult. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I couldn't really, like, I've definitely been up and down with this. Like, one thing that I've really noticed is that, like, I'm a rewards-based person. Like, I feel, and I've, I've never really know, known that my mind works like this, but it's quite clear that I've always done this, that I'm, like, I will work X amount of days, and, like, this is my day off, and I will see all my friends that day, and I'll do something, like, fun or whatever. But when your mind isn't working towards any kind of, like, freedom or, like, just even like brief like escape it's incredibly hard to to keep focused um mm-hmm. so i found that quite a bit and then like all time just feels like flat time like you're not having like random like encounters or you're not having like kind of conversations that you would normally have with Absolutely, friends and yeah you're not able to pop into a gallery or go and see a play Mm -hmm. or whatever which that kind of stimulation is so important to your own creativity yeah um i spoke to like one or two i did two like uh, lectures in one for nuig and and one for cork or limerick limerick and i was just talking to the creative writing students there and i was curious like but how they were getting on. I think it's a really hard time to be starting to write fiction or whatever, because you rely so much on that, like outside, like stimulation or like just overhearing conversations and things. And like, I feel like it's just a difficult time to be finding what you, you want to write about when like all the world is like just pushing in on, on top of you, you know? Definitely. It is. Yeah. So yeah, I was going to ask, you know, if you would like to read something for us. I would. So you're going to read from a story from Shows in a Good Time. I am. Okay, I'm going to read from Abortion Love Story to, to give Great. some kind of um, taste of what that's like. <laughs> you will either love it or hate it. <laughs> when Natasha first entered college at 18, a boy called Patrick, stick thin, raised Catholic, had attached himself to her. He was her first boyfriend. They were a good pairing because she was a strange person pretending to be a normal person, and he was a normal, well-raised person desperately pretending to be strange. She knew when they left college, he'd get a job in a bank, develop financial ideas. He was the sole link to a life Natasha felt she could never fully be part of. Already she suspected love was over for her. How could you make another person happy? How could they make you happy? During the day, she wandered the campus with Patrick, avoiding her classes, the buildings looming over them, the city outside the walls, doing whatever it did in its daylight hours. And he filled her in on the comings and goings of the place. She worried, despite all preventative measures being taken, self-control barriers being rightfully installed, her daily exercise regime producing slick metallic sweat that she had inherited inherited her mother's weak and crazy personality. Her mind felt like a long trailer carrying a number of cars. If one car went, they'd all go, scatter across the motorway, cause carnage. She'd miss her sanity when it went. She wanted to spend her weekends like the other students, underground, undernourished, blacking out, being infinitely surprised by her own youth and beauty. But she didn't allow herself. In her entire college career, she hadn't had one bit of fun and was immensely proud of this. Fun was forbidden to her. She might enjoy it too much and slip into the endless pursuit of it. 
At least she was charming, she assured herself, but charm was thin compensation for a life of constant lurking terror. Her relationship with Patrick had become queasier and queasier. In September, she had fallen pregnant and she had asked him to steal money from his parents to pay for the abortion. Steal money from your father, he said. I'm not a thief. Why are you this way, Patrick, she asked in genuine bafflement. The night before she travelled, Patrick counting out the cash looked like he might cry. It's okay if you want to cry, he said to Natasha. I don't, she replied. Not sure if you know this, but I had a very tough childhood and I've had to overcome obstacles far greater than this to seal my place in the elite college. You don't go to any of your classes. I have a disorder, she said. Anyway, you're only upset because you think you're supposed to be. You don't care about me. He didn't correct her. It was as if he couldn't procure an abortion and lie in the same week. It would have to be one or the other. In the clinic, she sat in the waiting room, trying to figure out how she was supposed to feel, wondering who to blame, nurturing her anger. It all happened in a flash. Although she, wasn't alone, she was alone, she didn't feel alone. She felt like a, large, a part of a large pantomime dragon made up of other women, a long line of them moving and swaying invisibly through the city. When she returned, she and Patrick stayed together. It was around then she stopped attending college full-time and started using the cotton wool in her ears more liberally. At the weekends, when Patrick went out to clubs, she stayed in his family home and cooked him hearty lasagnas. She bought a special apron. She wanted to look proper, like a girl who would never steal, never have an abortion. The apron was a plastic material, every stain wiped right off. She bought it in the luxury department store. On Saturday night, she watched television in the good living room with his parents, who loved her like an orphan. Patrick arrived home on the edge of Sunday evenings, looking strange, dirty, with that shame he carried in his shoulders whenever he'd been cheating on her. Whoever he'd been sleeping with, Nastasha still got an almighty thrill watching him eat those lasagnas. As she layered the ingredients, the red of the mince reminded her of her father's bloody, bloody mouth, huge and open at their kitchen table. To calm herself, she often locked herself in the bathroom and counted the perfumes, emerging extremely fragrant. She didn't eat any of the lasagnas, and if Patrick started telling her about the funny out of the clubs, what a glorious good time it all was, she just stood up and left the room. Afterwards, they had sex, tentatively, lightly, as if neither of them wanted to be involved anymore. On one of their last weekends together, Patrick, a psychology student, said that God had appeared to him in a dream and told him the only real addiction Natasha had inherited from her mother was her addiction to pain. Maybe God should have diagnosed me before you got me pregnant, she said. Finally, in the college coffee shop, their relationship was coming to a close. She slid a cold lasagna across the table as a symbol of their time together. I don't like you anymore, she announced. You don't like anything, Natasha. It was true. One day as a challenge, she set herself the task of writing down everything she didn't like. She filled an entire copybook with her tiny, hateful handwriting. She included the elite college at least 45 times. She included the concept of fun 10 times. She included Patrick 18 times. She shrugged. Goodbye, Patrick. Patrick tapped his fingers meditatively across his nose subsuming this rejection, rejection into his grand personal narrative within a few short seconds and stood up. He didn't say goodbye. When he was safely out of sight, Natasha took out the ornate cigarette case in which she kept her cotton wool. She had to be careful she didn't hear any opinions in the coffee shop. She crammed some in her ears and began to cry. Normally, she didn't understand her fellow students' need for melancholy, their high emotional register, shrieking music and complete lack of composure, like they were auditioning daily for some drama she wanted nothing to do with. She had to keep her emotions quiet and fixed in place or her whole face would break apart. But this was the end of her first romance and she was determined to enjoy it. She wept loudly, not knowing herself if they were fake or real tears. She attracted a lot of attention from nearby tables. 
Her father's false teeth appeared to her that night, their cold porcelain chattering in the silver of her dreams. For once she could hear what they said. Natasha, don't lose your mind. Thank you. I think that was a great bit to choose, actually. Um, so thank you so much for that. And yeah, just to say thanks again for coming on the show. Delighted to have you. No, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you for including me in Quarantine FM. I'll be listening. <laughs> so thanks very much again to Nicole for taking the time to speak to me. Um, she's actually off Twitter on a Twitter cleanse at the moment. So you can't find her on there. But if you'd like to read her book, you can find Show Them a Good Time. Um, in all good bookshops and retailers and keep an eye out for her work which will be coming down the pipeline um, a novel that she's she's working on at the moment and now for the final part of the show we're going to look at translator frank win a collection of stories he edited has recently been published but before we get to that who is frank win anna yeah, so this just caught my eye and I thought, why not Why not spend a couple of minutes talking about him? Um, so Frank Wynne is a, a translator um, from Ireland. He it translates mainly kind of from French and Spanish. Uh, he moved to France in the 80s and discovered a passion for language there. Um, and then kind of began to translate properly in the 90s and has translated loads of different authors Um particularly from French. So um, authors who's like um, Sansa, Claude Landsman, um, Thomas Eloy Martinez, Almudena Grandes. So a a huge range of authors. And he's he's earned a number of awards as well, including the Scott Moncrief Prize, um, the Premio Val Inclan. So, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting one because I feel like translation is a side of literature that we often forget about and the role of the translator. Maybe we don't forget about it, but they're often not mm-hmm. in the spotlight. I feel often if you if you read a book in translation, you might not even remember the name of the translator. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it'd be nice to kind of to to have a look at him. Um, and I the reason that he caught my eye is because he came has come out with a collection of kind of writing that he's edited uh, recently called Queer, a collection of LGBTQ writing from ancient times to yesterday, um, which sounds like just a very kind of fun and eclectic collection of writing from Catullus and Sappho, kind of from the ancient end of the spectrum to Rimbaud and, you know, Maupas, kind of French authors and much more recent work. Um, so it's a representation kind of of particularly I think of queer love stories um so yeah it sounds it sounds like a really interesting collection of works um that's just come out recently and that's from Head of Zeus Press which is based in London so there's there's some names in this collection I think that we would know already um and lister emily dickinson is in there i believe am i am i right in saying that she is um i think so there's kind of some i don't know if it's in a letter of hers or poetry she's written about um of kind of women's beauty um so that's 
that's in there and yeah there's Juno Dawson um I'm not sure if Gertrude Stein is in there I think she might be but it's kind of extracts and scenes poems so kind of a range of different genres um but it's described as an unabashed and unapologetic anthology which gives voice to those often silenced um so yeah sounds sounds great it's one I'd be interested to get a copy of um he's edited other collections as well he had another one out that I think was called found in translation and that was 2018 so that I think is um collections of kind of different what was described as glittering diamonds of world literature but I think really making an effort to have kind of a broad global span um of texts translated from you know Azerbaijan and China and Slovenia and just across the board um so I think as well he picked some sort of famous writers who translated kind of on the side so writers like D.H. Lawrence um um, and Edith Wharton and Saul Bellow who at different times translated other writers work um so yeah it's an it's an interesting one and I when I was having to think about translation and kind of just the value of it as because I just think it's such an amazingly valuable thing to do you know to bring work from other countries to new audiences um because otherwise I feel like you can be quite blinkered about you know you're only reading things written in English um but I was thinking as well of the the Dublin um literary prize um let me just get the name of it because it was formerly the Impact Prize but it's now just called the International Dublin Literary Award um and that's presented every year in Dublin for and it's interestingly it's one of the biggest prize pots so it's a hundred thousand euro to the winner um and it's one of the few that can be won you know compared to something like the booker that can be won by um a work that's either in english or translated and if it's um a, a work in translation then the writer receives three quarters of it and then the translator gets a quarter of of the money so um last year it it was um milkman um was the winning novel um but in previous mm-hmm. years i think it's been around since maybe the 90s and there's been at least like 9 or 10 um international winners who were who wrote works in translation so yeah um it's 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 a big deal so it's nice to see that they're recognizing uh translated work Absolutely. And I, I think it, it's something that, you know, if we think of all the great works, maybe that, like you said, that we've been able to enjoy and you might know the name of the original author, but not the translator, that we should, you know, be more conscientious in our appreciation for someone who takes so much time to go off and, and, and find different works and to put, put it together, maybe like in an in an in an anthology or to create a whole text um it's a skill i i i, I don't possess <laughs> um i'm i'm useless with um other languages um just doesn't come natural to me at all so um it's great that we were able to cover it a little bit on the show this week 
And that's our lot now for this week on Reader's Hour. We hope that you enjoyed listening to the show. You can find us on Twitter at Reader's Hour and get in touch to us via email readershour at gmail.com. As usual, we'll be sharing links in a day or two where you can listen back. So don't be afraid to spread the word. So goodbye for now. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and mind yourselves. We're going to be back to you next Saturday. Thank you.